I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with A.G., the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Mueller She Wrote. We talk about the Mueller report, of course, and the impeachment trial, but A.G. also opens up about something that she doesn't talk about very often publicly, and that's her being sexually assaulted while she was in the military. And we talk about what so often happens to victims of sexual assault. She was blamed, she wasn't believed, and the person who assaulted her was never held accountable. And although we don't go into the details of the assault, I do want to caution listeners who may be sensitive to this type of content that we start this part of the conversation at approximately six minutes into the recording. I hope this episode is helpful to people. And thanks so much again to AG for sharing this personal and painful story. So here is my conversation with AG of Muller She Wrote. AG, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first off, I, I will thank you for joining me, but I just want to ask you, um, so you're still working in government and you're working in, I'm not really sure what branch you're in, but you're semi-anonymous, right? So <laughs> I guess my first question, the first thing I wanted to know was how have you managed to stay? Like how, how have you wanted to stay, first of all? Because people are leaving, you know, government and this administration specifically left and right. Well, it's kind of a long story, and I'm sort of in limbo right now. And legally, um, I have been advised not to really go into too many details, but um, everything's sort of up in the air, and I'm working on it, and it's interesting. That's about the most I can say. Yeah, I wasn't really sure because I was thinking, if you were me, you know, or if I were you, rather. The, the idea of working in government and starting a podcast, the podcast that you've started, like I would be nervous. I don't I don't think I could go for it with like, were you nervous before you started Muller She Wrote? Like, how did you get over that hump and decide to go ahead and do it? Well, I was. And in fact, there are some things I can divulge. First of all, um, the Trump administration's Office of General Counsel had requested my employee documents and employee records uh, a little bit I think it was right around the time I was starting the podcast. And that made me really, really nervous. But what I did was I went out and I spoke to an attorney who uh, is an expert at the Hatch Act and First Amendment rights and had multiple ongoing discussions about what I could and couldn't say and what I could and couldn't tweet and, you know, all the all the ways that you know, I was trying to go forward ethically as a government employee without violating any rules or, um, you know, agency policy. Yeah. So I'm assuming you were you were in the same position before the administration took office or did you only take it afterwards? And I'm curious as to how the mood and tenor has necessarily changed, you know, since the beginning. Have you seen it kind of, I mean, we've all seen it from the outside kind of decline, but what has it been like being that close to everything? Well, I've been with this agency for 12 years, almost 12 years. Okay. And uh, in fact, I took the oath of office the same day Obama took the oath of office. Oh, I see. Okay. And so I, I, I'm a, a low level, not, well, I mean, my high level, low level <laughs> employee. And got it. So think of this. You remember Lisa Page, the, the lawyer who, yeah. who had teamed up with Strzok on the Mueller team and she was, you know, sort of publicly humiliated by Trump, uh, like at every turn. <sighs> Her and I have the same level in the government. We're both GS-14s and the rules she has to follow and the rules I have to follow are pretty much the same. And that that's sort of where that is. But but to answer your question about how it's changed, as soon as it in my agency specifically, 
there was a lot of movement to deregulate and to privatize, which put our customers in peril. And so it was the morale sank quite a bit. And there, there was a drain. Uh, a lot of people left. Uh, and then a lot of people, you remember when McMulvaney said, uh, we have a new way to get rid of employees we don't like. We just move their jobs across the country. Uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, uh, lost their positions that way as well. What does privatization do? I'm, I'm assuming that gives them a lot more control over what they can do and say when you privatize, right? Well, basically what it means is instead of directly offering the services to our customers through the government, we were hiring outside private entities to perform these tasks and it was cost and it still is costing the taxpayers a lot of money the service is substandard and it's uh, it's just bad for everyone. It's kind of like if you think about, and I don't work for Department of Prisons, but you can imagine if you work for the government and you're running and regulating the prisons, and then all of a sudden you privatize the prison system, you're going to get people who are more concerned about turning a profit than they are about saving taxpayer dollars and being a ward of taxpayer dollars and and giving the best service possible. So it's, if you think about it along those lines, you can kind of imagine sort of where we were all at when when Trump took office. Yeah, I, I just, you know, props to you. I, I couldn't do it. I, I <laughs> my nerves would get the best of me. And, you know, yeah, there'd be lots of drinking and lots of more <laughs> lots of stuff. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you and I don't know if you've ever talked about this publicly, but one of the things that, that you've been dealing with and we wanted to talk about was being a victim of sexual assault, specifically military sexual assault. And as a result, you've had to deal with PTSD. Can you talk a bit about that's because this happened before the Me Too movement. And I would imagine that, you know, being in the military is not the best environment for empathy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, so, I mean, tell me what what happened there. Sure, Uh, I joined a long time ago. I was one of the first women into the nuclear program. And uh, after boot camp, I went to Naval Nuclear Power Training Command in Orlando. And it was me and three other women and 600 men. And before we arrived, they all had to have this sensitivity training, which immediately just made them all hate us. And when I got there, I noticed, first of all, they didn't have the facilities for us. Second of all, they didn't have a GYN on staff. Uh, There was just a lot to contend with, along with the fact that all of these guys were already like, oh, God, now we have to take special training because the ladies are here. Yeah. And so it was just a it was the environment just wasn't professional, we'll say. And about three months into a school, um, I was raped by a, a fellow member of the military. And when I went to report it, uh, I was pretty much scared out of reporting it. They asked me all the questions that you sometimes hear victim blaming people ask, like, were you drunk? What were you wearing? Were you flirting? You know, and then they said, if I filed a false report, uh, I could be kicked out of my school. I could lose my benefits. I could be dishonorably discharged. And so, you know, they said, why don't we just chalk this up to what it really is, your bad decisions. And so I kept my mouth shut about it. And I was terrified about saying anything to anyone for a long time. And that manifested into PTSD. You can't hide from trauma. And so it eventually comes up and uh, started happening after I got out of the military in the form of panic attacks and and anxiety and depression and um, finally got the care that I needed and have been doing better ever since. But that's the long and short of it. And it, it, you know, it's, you're, you're right. It all happened before the Me Too movement, but thank God that the Me Too movement happened. Thank God that we're sort of in a, I mean, it's 2020, we shouldn't be here at all, but 
we're in a much better place than we were then to talk about what's happened to us. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I mean, uh, I can't imagine. I mean, so I was just thinking about the environment that you described, right? You go in and it's obvious in the way that they've set it up that they're kind of hostile to women being in that environment generally, right? You don't have an OBGYN, right? There's 600 men. And so you know, the messaging there is that, you know, you're not really welcomed here legally. You can be in the military, but this isn't a place where we actually want women. So first of all, mm-hmm. you're dealing with that. And then you end up dealing with sexual assault. And I would imagine that because they don't want you to talk, it's hard for you to find anyone around you that has any empathy, including the other two women who were there, I would imagine that they're probably afraid to be an ally to you. Yeah. And, and, and there's, you know, repercussions for that uh, because you want to be one of the guys so that, you know, you're not, you don't have to deal with the onslaught of microaggressions every day. Uh, but I was in a film uh, in 2012. It was a documentary by uh, Amy Jiren called The Invisible War. And I recorded my interview for that movie. And it wasn't until I actually was at the premiere and saw the film that I realized that there were tons of other women and men who had gone through exactly what I went through with the same phrasing, you know, what were you wearing? Were you drunk? Uh, et cetera. Didn't you, you know, yeah. shouldn't you maybe have not done this? Maybe you shouldn't have been wearing what you were wearing. Perhaps, you know, if and if you file a false report, were they threatened them with all these other things? And they put my interview in a montage with, like I said, several other women and men who had the exact same treatment, exact same phrases and verbiage uh, given to them, the same garbage. And at, right then is when I finally felt like, okay, I'm not crazy, and that there are other people that this exact thing has happened to. And that was so amazing to to feel not alone anymore. It was, it was, that was a, probably the, the minute I realized that, you know, I, I've been gaslit for so many years. I'm not crazy. This happened. And it happened to a lot of other people. Yeah. Gaslighting is the perfect word for what they, what they actually do. Um, and that's amazing that that was 2012, because I think the Me Too movement was fall of 2016, I think. Right. So that was four years before. And like now, you know, I think people are better about talking about it publicly, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be any accountability necessarily, right? I mean, you know, I was thinking about like the presidential debates with the primary. No one's really talked about yeah. the Me Too movement, right? So I feel like in some ways we've made a lot of progress, but still there's there's huge pockets where there is no accountability, right? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, we did have that little skirmish between Warren and Sanders about, you know, can a woman win and who thought who said what. Uh, but that's really the and that was supposed to be behind the scenes. We weren't supposed to know about that, I don't think. And and really, that's kind of it, except for, uh, you know, the candidates talking about women can win. They haven't really gone into the, into right. the Me Too movement. Right. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, you mentioned Warren and Sanders. I really thought that that was going to be the turning point where they'd start to talk about this because, you know, people kind of keep sexual assaults and the PTSD and all the other fallout that happens to victims, they kind of keep that in a, in a bubble. Like, okay, the sexual assault happened to you and maybe you'll have some mental health challenges or, you know, you'll have PTSD, but the fallout is longer than that, right? It's longer and broader, right? Like, you know, PTSD, you know, getting jobs later, you know, just functioning in relationships and with friendships. When you have trouble in your career because of the PTSD, that affects your income, right? You're exactly right. It broadens that scope of concern on, on the economy. And then to take it even a step further, 
you know, how it, it can hurt your income or it can negatively impact your income, that negatively impacts tax revenue, which negatively impacts our deficit, which negatively impacts the amount of money we can spend on things like health care and education. And, it, and it's it's terrible that they don't make that connection, but they don't. Well, the reason I brought it up is because, you know, if someone were not comfortable, you know, because we've got a lot of men still left in the primary, bringing it up purely from a sexual assault perspective, which they should be at this juncture. So there are lots of other ways that they could connect it to things that they like talking about, like health care and mental health care, because mental health care is health care, right? And to the, the impacts to women economically. So anyway, that was my point, yeah. that there are other ways they could connect it. So what happened in your case? Did you get any justice or did you just leave? How, how did that get resolved? No, uh, no justice. Um, I didn't file the report. I was told if I did, many, many bad things would happen. So I just uh, got out of the military when I had a chance. And uh, I did file a claim with the Department of Veterans Affairs. It was denied multiple times. But I ended up speaking to uh, retired Brigadier General Allison Hickey, who's a really incredible woman. She was running the Women's Health Benefits Center in Washington, D.C. for the Department of Veterans Affairs at the time. She had seen the movie I was in and called to ask how I was doing. And I told her it's been hard. You know, the VA has denied my claim three times saying that because there was no evidence, because I didn't file a report, they couldn't verify that it actually happened. And she said, wow, you know, that that's been happening a lot lately. And then Within two weeks, I, I had gotten a phone call that my uh, examination for a disability was approved. And finally, the Navy and the Department of Veterans Affairs acknowledged what happened to me uh, and compensated me for it. Uh, but it, it did take, uh, it was 2012 when that compensation happened. So that's uh, 95, that's 17 years, wow. 17 years. Do you think that's intentionally a part of the punishment? I don't know. Maybe I'm being too conspiratorial. I don't think so. I think the problem is, is that, you know, the, the VA is underfunded. Uh, they have a massive backlog of claims that they were dealing with at the time. Plus, then they just started awarding Agent Orange all the way back for people in Vietnam just recently. Yeah. And so all, you know, the, the, the backlog for claims just got huge. And then, of course, it's sort of had this environment of no, because if, you know, if you denied the claims, people, especially people with PTSD or, you know, traumatic brain injury, just didn't have the capacity or the drive to fight it. And it was just such a fight that most people gave up and that would save the VA money. That just makes me so angry, right? <laughs> this is the last thing you should be doing is trying to fight for your benefits when you're also trying to take care of yourself. You know what I mean? It's just anyway. Yeah. And ask anyone with PTSD how much fun it is to fill out 8,000 forums and show up again and again and, and repeat what happened to you over and over and relive the trauma so that they can verify that something happened. It's just, it's really bad. And I've said for many years about the Department of Veterans Affairs, if they stopped adjudicating claims, if they stopped hiring people and spending money and administration fees to decide how disabled someone is, if we didn't spend any of that money, we'd be able to give free health care to veterans, all veterans for life. Yeah. You started working in government a while ago, right? And so you were there before this administration. You saw the inauguration and you saw the way it's gone. I'm just curious when... It was clear that Trump, first of all, was going to get the nomination. And then, you know, he I guess you can say he won, quote unquote, <laughs> won the election. I, I, you know, I guess another word to say he's occupying the, the White House right now or occupying the Oval Office. Um, 
thinking about what we know about him, the Access Hollywood tapes and all of the other stories about him being accused of rape, I would imagine that that was additionally traumatizing to you. Like it was to a lot of us. Yeah, it, it's disgusting, right? And one of the ongoing issues that a lot of women have to contend with when going to the Department of Veterans Affairs, specifically for women who've, uh, and men who face military sexual trauma, hanging right there in the front reception area of every single Department of Veterans Affairs and Veterans Health Administration hospital is a giant picture of Donald Trump. And you have yeah. to walk past that every time you go in. It's just this, just a reminder of where we are as a country and how backwards everything is, considering everything that he's done. What well, we have 21 women now that have come out and, uh, you know, credibly accused him of assault. And as you said, the, the Access Hollywood tape, it's just, it's, it's tough. It's a re-traumatization is what it is. It makes it difficult. Right. So imagine, I mean, you can imagine this, right? But just think about the idea of a victim having the person who is in the most powerful position in the world, really, you know, being someone who sexually assaults people. And that just, I just can't even fathom the additional trauma that people go through, you know, seeing this person day in and day out. So that just makes me very sad. Yeah. And you put that in the context of him having to adjudicate my health care as a veteran and then also having to be my boss as an executive branch employee. It's like a triple whammy. And then, of course, picking Supreme Court justices like Brett yeah. Kavanaugh and that thing, like going through that. I mean, I, that again is just unfathomable. Yeah, that was another one. That was another just awful moment in our history. I wish there was some way to undo it. Like, I, I wish there was like, hey, if you're an impeached president, we have take backsies on your Supreme Court nomination. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of diverging here. But what do you think about that? Like some people have thrown that out. But I mean, that doesn't seem to be plausible. It's not really plausible. Although Kamala Harris did say in the chamber today that while they are, uh, you know, adjudicating a trial about the impeachment of a president that we should halt or put a freeze on all judicial nominations during this consideration. So she, she did put that out there, but taking back already nominated judges and he's packed the courts. I mean, one out of every four judges is a Trump nominee now and uh, taking them back, I don't think is something that's feasible at this point, unfortunately, but I mean, you know, maybe somebody will come up with something good. We can get a good lawsuit going some class action or something, but I don't, I don't know. I don't see it. Maybe Kamala Harris, right? Like justice is on the ballot. <laughs> Right. I would love for her to become the attorney general and just do that. Just be like, all right, we're filing a class action suit against every single judicial nominee uh, <laughs> by this impeached president. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of PTSD, I don't know if you saw, I think this was last week when Ilhan Omar came out and said that the talk of um, war with Iran and, you know, the escalations in the Middle East was causing her PTSD. And I think people generally have a misunderstanding about PTSD, that it can only happen in the military due to, to war, like being actually in combat. Right. But, you know, in her case, she has PTSD because, you know, I think she was a refugee as a child. And in your case, because of sexual assault, people generally have a misunderstanding of PTSD. Yeah, I actually think that a lot of people um, probably have to deal with PTSD without realizing that they have it because, like you said, we're all under the impression you can't unless you were in a war. And the, the symptoms are the same too. Like, for example, uh, loud noises really uh, impact me. And a lot of people for a long time thought that that was because of bombs and guns and rockets. But it's not. Oh. It's because you're constantly you, you've had a traumatic event happen in your life and you're constantly in fight, flight or freeze mode. 
And so when you're on that high alert all the time, any loud noise is, is going to make, is going to, you know, set you off or, you know, maybe trigger a panic attack or, um, create this just huge sense of fear. And so I, you know, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's unfortunate. And I think that's another symptom of what you were talking about earlier. The fact that we don't have healthcare, mental health care is healthcare. And the fact that we don't have access to it in this country, like we should. And, you know, if, if you think that, you know, you might have PTSD to, you know, please reach out and, and get some help and, and ask for help. There's not absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, and there's huge amounts of support and resources available. And after the film came out, I, I spoke to a lot of women's studies groups and, and a lot of on a lot of college campuses. And we screened the film a lot. There were just a lot of women who didn't realize who had been so gaslit and shamed and, and, and convinced it was their fault that they actually believed that it was their fault. And so, you know, just I, I would hope everybody could reflect on that and never be afraid to reach out and, and just ask questions and get help. It's really, really made a huge difference in my life. You know, the thing about it is, is that if our institutions dealt with this differently, dealt with sexual assault specifically differently, they could I think they could avert a lot of the compounding trauma and the PTSD that that victims deal with. Right. Like, I mean, part of the PTSD and part of the trauma is because people don't believe you, right? Like you're just compounding the trauma when you don't do that. I mean, you could help possibly people heal faster if you, we just dealt with it better in our institutions. 100% right. Like I said, if the VA hadn't denied my claim over and over again, I might be in a, a better a better place than I than I am, or at least was at the time. So you're continuing Mueller, she wrote, right? Like even though Mueller isn't in the picture, just going to your podcast. Yeah, yeah well, because we, we, were, we were asked about that. Well, Mueller investigation's over. You're going to change the name of your podcast. Uh, uh, and our listenership has just grown. And I mean, is Mueller really over? Because, you know, now we've got these uh, lawsuits working their way through the Supreme Court, the court system, about getting the grand jury materials from the Mueller investigation and also getting the testimony of, of Don McGahn for obstruction of justice, which could, could lead to uh, additional articles of impeachment. But then you also have to think about the Ukraine connection between Manafort. This has been going on for a lot longer than the, the perfect phone call that moved the public needle enough to, to go forward with articles of impeachment. But it's all connected. And, and I think that that broader story is going to start coming out now. And a lot of that has to do with what Mueller found. It's just a lot of people ended up not reading that report. It was pretty it's a pretty big report. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, it's it's just a perfect name. Me, as a listener, I always understood it was broader than Mueller, but that the name was kind of perfect. So, you know, you don't have to change the name. I mean, come on. Thank you. And we do have a daily, <laughs> we do have a morning daily news show, too, called The Daily Beans, which is less Mueller-focused, but still out there to cover all the news, particularly leading up to 2020. And, and there's just there's just so much, so much news. It's, it's almost impossible. I was just curious. What did you think about the whole thing, about Mueller's testimony? You know, my short theory, was is that you know basically he was saying peace out america <laughs> you know see ya i don't know i just yeah i expected a little more from that you know but maybe i'm being unfair well a lot of people did and i think he was diligent and i think when we get to see the grand jury materials millions and billions of, of documentary evidence the problem was is that Mueller is very old school and very conservative he followed that Office of Legal Counsel memo guideline of the Department of Justice that you can't indict a president. And because you can't indict a president, it's not fair to uh, accuse him of committing a crime, even if you aren't charging him with one, because he doesn't have the ability to defend himself in a criminal court at that point. And so he said, look, here is here it all is, Congress. Now it's your job. The remedy for this is impeachment. And then he just did the casino hands and walked away. 
pretty much yep pretty much how it went i mean obviously you can't indict a sitting president but you can put the evidence out there you can put what you found out there and i don't well, know he did he in particularly volume two there were 10 instances of obstruction of justice five of which met all three component requirements to meet criminal felony level obstruction of justice but he couldn't say he committed obstruction of justice because he felt constitutionally you can't accuse a person of a crime unless they have the op- the the ability to defend themselves, which would be a trial, which he couldn't get because he couldn't indict him. So it was just this weird catch-22. Oh, I see. So you can't accuse them if you can't indict them? Is that the... Right. Well, the other issue is, and this is kind of an important one. Do you remember how he was asked, like, could he be prosecuted when he leaves office? And he said, yes, he can. And if Mueller came out and said, Trump is guilty of obstruction of justice, but I couldn't charge him with the crime, but he's definitely a criminal. He committed obstruction of justice. Here's all the ways. Then he would have tainted a future prosecution. Trump would have very easily been able to say, I can't get a fair trial because he called me a criminal. So he would would be able to get his case dismissed and and would walk scot-free. I mean, you know, provided he's not pardoned for all of it anyhow. But Mueller didn't want to taint or hurt the potential of of prosecuting him as a civilian once he's out of office. Right. Okay. I get it now. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So what is he doing now? Is he on a beach somewhere in Mueller? He's probably in Hawaii. (laughs) Yeah, I would be. I'd be like, peace out. Like... (laughs) I did my thing, and and uh, and I shouldn't say I did my thing. I mean, he had seventeen team members, and most of, most of them probably did the work. He was just sort of a presiding, you know, efficient, but hopefully having margaritas somewhere. Exactly. Well, Ag, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for all of your work. And I love Mueller. She wrote. Jen, thank you so much. I love your podcast. Please keep <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. We have to just keep doing this until until November and, and beyond. Yeah, and beyond. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.